Show. I'm your host, Cynthia Gern, and I have as my guest today Dr. Robert Brown, who has written a fabulous book, which we will let him tell you about in his own words before we begin our conversation today. Uh, my name is Dr. Robert Brown, and I've written a book entitled Economic Stress, Harsh Truths and Keys to Empowerment. And I wrote this book because I wanted to help inform and empower people who may be affected by economic stress. I define economic stress as the inability of a person or a family to meet their financial obligations because of job loss, not enough work, job instability, or low wages, and the impact on their mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and economic well-being. Obviously, economic stress speaks to the financial implications that a person or family may experience, but in my book, I wanted to really understand how economic stress can make you feel as a person, as a human being. So as I began to do research on economic stress, I found a lot of information about the impact to the larger society. But what I was interested in discovering was what can it do and how can it affect a person or family. I even came across the definition of economic stress that has been put forth by the Associated Press. It's called the Economic Stress Index. And what it does is capture rates of unemployment, bankruptcy, and foreclosure for each state. But to me, bankruptcy and foreclosure would be the results of economic stress. So in formulating my own definition, I wanted to identify ways to help validate how economic stress can make a person feel. And so what I've done in my book is to use the personal stories of people who are actually affected by economic stress. So you get to hear in their own words how economic stress makes them feel. Not feels. And I thought that by doing this, it would help to humanize in addition to validate the impact of economic stress. So the first four chapters of the book focus on how it can make you feel, but the remaining nine chapters focus on how you can manage economic stress more. You've just heard Dr. Brown describe in his own words the purpose of his book, Economic Stress, Hard Truths, and Keys to Empowerment. And now we're going to begin having a conversation with Dr. Brown and delve deeper into the purpose and meaning of his book. I heard Dr. Brown on a television program being interviewed, and I was very much interested in the work that he's done and the research he's done about uh, today's economic fallout, if you will, uh, people who've been adversely impacted uh, by the economic changes and trends that are going on, and, and his recommendations both on a personal level, psychological, behavioral, as well as practical level on uh, sludging through all of the, uh, the murkiness that, that overcomes you when you're in the middle of a hurricane. We used to call it white water. When you're in the middle of white water, how do you get out of it? Uh, and I think Dr. Brown has written a very interesting book uh, that kind of gives us some insight and some direction. Also, Dr. Brown, just briefly let me introduce who uh, Dr. Brown is and more information is available both on LinkedIn as well as on our newsletter. But uh, Dr. Brown is an adjunct faculty a member of Howard University, and he teaches a variety of fascinating courses that we don't hear discussed very often anymore. Uh, those are the sociology of urban and urban communities, of families, the sociology of families, and um, 
and his background is sociology and anthropology. So I think it's time we took off our blinders and looked at not just business uh, and change from the economic perspective, but the human toll and the human behaviors. So what made you write this book? I mean, did, did you kind of apply your years of experience in these fields to your understanding of what the issues really were and needed to be discussed? Well, that was a part of it, but I wrote the book because I, I saw a need in terms of the extent to which a growing number of people could really use information that they could put to use right away. We have not seen this level of economic dysfunction since the Great Depression, but what's different is that so many more groups of people across race, ethnicity, geographic location, discipline, educational levels are being affected. And so this book hopefully will be used by people as a resource tool, not just to understand how to manage economic stress more effectively, but hopefully to validate how economic stress can make you feel as a person. And if economic stress makes you feel, well, how does it make you feel as a person? What have you seen in your studies that demonstrates the impact of economic stress on different cultures and different educational levels, different families? Well, I think, I think the general feeling is one of disempowerment, and I'm all about helping to empower people. But one of the major themes is that many people feel helpless, they feel hopeless, and they often feel that they have no alternative to change the circumstances in which they find themselves. One of the issues that we are confronting now as a nation is that more of us are in work environments where we may not get to come back after the pay cycle. And what I mean by that is we live in a two-week environment where at the end of the two-week pay cycle, you and your employer are even. And so that means that you may or may not get the opportunity to work for another two weeks to get paid again. And so this has created a lot of additional stress for millions of workers around the country because of that level of uncertainty. And so when you hear the term job and secure, job stability, rather, it has really become a contradiction in terms. And you had mentioned, too, that people – most people are just two weeks, uh, you know, sorry, you know, what is it, how did you phrase it? Two weeks away from, you know, financial ruin. I mean, they are, they, they count on their paycheck. And they well, it may not two be financial back. ruin, but because so many more people are living, are living paycheck to paycheck, and that's not necessarily the result of fiscal irresponsibility, but simply because the cost of living has skyrocketed. People are no longer in a position where they have the cushion financially that they may have a generation ago. And so, again, you may be a great employee, you may help the company in many, many ways that are productive, but it still doesn't mean necessarily that you may have a job to come to after that pay cycle has completed. So economic stress, is that a cause or an effect? Are there forces that, that are outside of the individual's control? Oh, absolutely. And are the forces I, I mean, inside? Well, well, if you're looking at the external forces, you have to look at things like the company bottom line. Again, you might be an exemplary employee, but you are an expendable asset. So it may not be in the company's best interest to retain you, especially if you're an older worker who may have 20 or 30 years of experience. You tend to be more expensive for the company, not just in terms of salary, but also in terms of benefits, especially health care, as opposed to a worker that's in their 20s or maybe 30s. So that's an external factor that the, the employee has no control over. When you talk about some of the internal factors, one of the things that can be very insidious about economic stress is a person who is gainfully employed could still experience economic stress. It's a reality for a growing number of Americans around the country, 
but there mm-hmm. are things that you can do about it. And I think part of the part of the the management part of economic stress is not to panic. That's the first thing. You 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 can't panic, even though it can be a very very sobering situation. You you've got to remain as calm as you can so that you're able to think in as proactive a manner as possible. So, but what's you know? I guess the end the end result or end reason you do react positively or take positive action is that you, A, want to survive, B, you may have people who are relying on you, and I know many people, you hear stories all the time of people who are in these circumstances who go right to the brink and, you know, they make a decision, a life or death, do I really want to live? Do I really want to continue? How do you pull people back from the brink when they're really full of despair about those things that, that you've just discussed. And I also want you to address the role of the manager because a lot of the data suggests that managers create, even in economically sound work environments, an incredible amount of stress, unnecessary stress on individuals. Uh, and well, I like to design what you, feel, what you see or feel or have heard about that. Sure. Well, I think the, the first part of your question is, A great way to survive the economic stress that you may face is to have a good source source of social support. That could be a spouse, a partner, a friend that you trust, someone from the faith community, but an individual who is going to be understanding, sympathetic, compassionate, but who will also give you sound, objective input that helps to reduce the level of stress that you're feeling and not heighten your anxiety. So talking with someone is, is very important, and I especially say that for the male listeners that you have, because oftentimes men tend to internalize and not want to expose the extent to which they may not be able to manage their finances, because men are hardwired to do two things, provide and protect. And so when that is compromised, especially for men, they often turn in as opposed to turning out and saying, you know what, I'm not able to handle this, I need some help. So having a source of social support is really key, but going to the manage the managers There are some great managers, we know this, and we have many managers across the country, as you know, who are very sensitive and supportive to the needs of their employees or the people that they manage, knowing that it's a very difficult time for many people because they're often thinking about their job security. But the flip side of that coin is you do have some managers who are creating work environments that are becoming less and less productive because people are constantly thinking about If I make one little mistake, is that going to cost me my job? And so as Mm -hmm. opposed to trying to minimize the level of stress that many employees are feeling now, in addition to the increased job demands that many workers are facing, you've got some managers who are doing just the opposite because they feel that, you know what, I'm in an employer-friendly environment, and so I have my pick of any number of potential candidates in the event that you do something that I don't think you should be doing. And so what this does is it tends to impact the level of productivity of that business. And so you have to ask yourself, happier workers tend to be better workers. And so as a manager, are you doing the things that should be done to help create an environment that is positive, that is friendly, that encourages the the best behavior and performance from the employees? Have you done any research or as part of your book, and I'm curious how you did do your research for your book, on the economic impact, the bottom line cost of a stressful environment for employees, whether it's uh, due to economics or due to management, et cetera. 
Well, no, I didn't do specific research on that topic, but what I, what I do know is that stressful work environments tend to have an adverse impact on company bottom lines, especially mm -hmm. if the stress is created because of employer-employee interactions. Right. If you look at you, the, the evidence, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. If you, if you look at the evidence, you tend to see that the more robust companies tend to have employees that have higher levels of job satisfaction, believe that they are more valued by company executives, and who also think that what they bring to the table as an employee is looked upon as helping to create solutions for the company's sustainability over time. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to uh, an earlier remark you made about the importance especially of men, and we know that to be true, seeking uh, resources and an environment and a trusting environment where they can talk about these, these issues. Don't you or have you found that there are very limited numbers of resources available, that, including family, that even if they're not in that situation really have the empathy an understanding of the impact of that situation on the individual's mental well, emotional well-being, because it's not just going out and getting a job or looking for a job. It's the the mental, the uh, impact on the psychology, the, uh, you know, the, the mental health of the individual. Uh, if you don't feel good about yourself, it's really hard to go out and look for a job. And I, my sense is that there, you know, the resources to to support people are either limited or they get burned out when that person doesn't seem to be making any constructive movement forward. Have you seen that as part of your profiles? Well, I haven't, I haven't delved into that specifically, but what I, what I do know is that the work demands that are placed on the American worker have become, in a growing number of instances, inordinate. And so you've got significantly higher work demands in environments that may be less than ideal in which the employee has seen colleagues, for example, get laid off, wondering, well, am I going to be the next person to get laid off? Mm -hmm. And so that person mm -hmm. now has had to absorb the work demands of the former employee. Mm -hmm. They have to produce at a certain level. And so that level of stress over time is, is, is going to take its toll. And so we, we all have the ability to fight off stress for a while, but over time we lose that ability. And so if you're, you're talking about the mental health aspect you're seeing rates of burnout that we haven't seen before. There's a phenomenon, mm -hmm. there's a sociological term called second shift. And what this means is the extent to which women, particularly younger women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, are professionals in the workplace and middle and upper management, CEOs in more instances now than in past generations, who are burning out sooner in their 20s and 30s because what? When they come home, the expectation is that they're going to be wives, they're going to be moms, they're going to be take, uh, caretakers of the home. And so we're seeing a significant spike in the level of burnout, again, talking to the mental health issue, of more and more younger women. And so the question mm -hmm. then becomes, at what point do you say, I can't do it all? And so these mental health issues have so many different implications for, for different groups of people. You're raising so many important issues, all of which have tributaries. They all have new issues that, you know, the very women, for example, are being, uh, you know, they're being kind of coaxed, encouraged, 
out of, sometimes out of necessity, out of their own personal desire to move ahead and become women in leadership. But, but as you say, you, you know, it's very hard to do it all. And uh, sometimes you don't even really want to do it. It's that, right. that stress that comes from other people's expectations versus your own expectation mm-hmm. and getting there. And then you talk about the behavioral side. You know, we've seen a huge uptick in, uh, you know, the overworked caseloads of people in mental health environments due to this, you know, economic fallout. And they get burned out. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you can't, you know, people who are supposed to help get burned out and they can't help. So having said all this and opened up the opportunity for many more conversations on more specific related topics, what have you, you interviewed a lot of people and you have created some uh, in your book, uh, the book, by the way, uh, to our listeners once again is uh, Economic Stress, Hard Truth, and Keys to Empowerment, which means that you're no, you don't have to be the vulnerable victim. You have within you the power to, to manage this crisis, correct? Absolutely. And one so of the key ways... Huh? Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, and I was saying one of the... One of the key ways to, to manage the empowerment part is to know who you are and know what you're bringing to the table. And by that, I mean every, every, every human being has a gift to offer this world. And so this may be the opportunity, as bad as the economic stress may be, for you to really discover and determine what that gift is. And what I promote in the book is, depending on what that gift is, is there a niche that you could fill with that gift because you're that passionate about it, you're that good at doing it, and because it's something that you would do for free. If you can answer yes to those questions and identify what that thing is, is it something that you could sketch out on a piece of paper to see what it looks like? And then is it something that you could offer to create to create a demand for that thing and monetize it? And so what I'm really advocating is there may be a lot of listeners out there who have always wanted to pursue entrepreneurship. And one of the things that we've seen over the last several months now is the spike in new, new business starts because people are finding that, you know, I've been looking for work for maybe a year and a half. I'm not able to get any traction. And so maybe this is the opportunity of a lifetime. It may be disguising mm-hmm. itself as economic stress, but it could be my setup for the opportunity of a lifetime for me to create a business that I've always wanted to pursue. But you'll never know unless you give it a try. So what I'm saying is I'm not dismissing or or minimizing how challenging this time can be, but what I am saying is you still have a choice in the matter. And so I'm hoping that through books like mine and other resources, people will make choices that will help to empower their lives and the lives of the people in their family. Right. And and have them as the people who are, surrounding the person who is going through this crisis, be supportive and, and help guide them in the right direction. You um, you did a lot of profiles, and in your in your book, <laughs> the chapters, there are 13 chapters, I believe, and yeah. some of them are really um, uh, are provocative in their title alone, and one of the topics has to do with living more realistically, that part of the stress is that we've kind of Increase our spending and increase our expectation, and are always living on the edge because, but we don't really have to if we rethink what a quality of life really is. Well, I think part of the challenge now is 
for people to understand that you may have to adjust your standard of living. Obviously, if you're experiencing economic stress, your standard of living has been adjusted for you, unfortunately. But oftentimes, too, people know that they no longer have the ability to maintain the lifestyle to which they become accustomed, but they keep spending as if they do. And typically, the spending is a result of using credit cards. And what I advocate is not to create new debt. But more important than that, it's really critical if you're going to get through the economic stress that you may face to think about changing your mind about what success looks like, what the American dream is in the 21st century. You may not be able to keep the the big fancy car. You may not be able to live in a 4,000-square-foot home. You may have to reduce your cost significantly in order to have a higher quality of living. And that can be a very difficult thing to do, especially for people who are middle and upper middle class, even working class, because they've mm-hmm. gotten accustomed to the, to the lifestyle, being able to do things, having disposable income, but now being in a position where they may not be able to take care of the basic necessities, paying the mortgage, paying the rent, buying groceries, paying the electric mm-hmm. bill. And so if that happens to be a situation in which you find yourself, I'm advocating the importance of changing your mind about what success looks like and then being okay with that. It's not Mm -hmm. an indictment of you, but it's an indictment of an economic landscape that has completely destabilized for the American worker. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one of your uh, chapter titles is She Doesn't Do Job Fairs Anymore. What's that about? Well, that's about a young woman who is a young professional. She is she has, a, she has a job still, but based on the climate in, in her office, which has become less positive, she's beginning to feel like a layoff could be something that visits her doorstep. And so a friend of hers invites her to come out to a job fair, where historically she's not had much success with job fairs, but she decides that she's going to go with her friend. She goes, and as they approach the building where the job fair is going to take place, they see a group of middle-aged professionals, and their thinking is that they are probably in town to, to, to develop strategies to help put workers back to work. But as the story unfolds, what she finds is that these people who are impeccably dressed are actually there to attend the job fair because they're also out of work. When she gets into the job fair, she finds that there is a jumbled mass of humanity, and, and one of the quotes from the book is, from a, from a fellow uh, job applicant, is that they are herding us in here like we're cattle because you had lines and lines of people trying to get access to the people behind the tables who had the jobs, and what this young woman experienced was a level of frustration that she was unwilling to accept. What ended up happening, after all of the effort she expended to get to this job fair, she was told by several different employers that the best thing for her to do would be to go to the company website. And so, as you might imagine, she leaves very frustrated and dejected, and at the end of it, she decides she's not going to go to job for her again because to her it was a, it was a waste of her time. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm advocating the importance of having a sponsor in your life because typically people who go to job fairs tend not to have an advocate who can say, listen, communicate with this person. They will be an asset to your company. Typically, people who go to job fairs are those who don't have any types of connections. And so we're finding that more and more the level of frustration grows because it ends up being an exercise in just that frustration as opposed to getting any traction. And that's why I advocated at the top of the show the idea of having profiles on social media like LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Mm. So sometimes the cure is worse than disease. So if you're being advised to use every resource and tool available, 
including job fairs. A job fair may have an indirect negative impact on your own self-worth, which which accelerates and the the depression or the anxiety that you're already experiencing, which gets conveyed to the uh, to the employer who's at the job fair. I say this knowingly because I have been in the field of employment and training for years, and uh, I have seen it. Uh, Many, many times. So what is this? I mean, yeah, the other title is that, that intrigued me was the Internet Job Search. I am a person, not a virtual piece of paper. Yes, that, that? that again goes to the extent to which the Internet, as it relates to mm-hmm. looking for work, is not necessarily mm-hmm. your friend. And what I mean by that is, say, for example, you are an individual that is looking for work, even if you have a job, for example, you may be sending dozens of resumes a week and you never get a response. And the reason is typically because once you hit the send button on that resume or application, you've just become a virtual piece of paper mm-hmm. among the millions of other virtual pieces of paper. And this is why I advocate having mentors and sponsors. But the other piece is, and this is something that job applicants tend not to know, a lot of the ways in which jobs are screened now is with computer programs. Or you may have a job applicant screener that is looking for certain keywords as a baseline indicator of whether or not a job applicant might be a potential fit. And so you go through this process maybe two, three, four, five times. And let's say, for example, you've got a pool of 750 applicants for one position. A third of the pool is does not meet those, does not meet those great baseline criteria. So that 250 applicants gone, and then you get through this iterative process where you may have 30 applicants out of the 750 who are actually eligible for face-to-face interviews. But that mm-hmm. is because oftentimes people don't know what keywords to use in their resumes, in their applications, and so they don't couch the language in a way that's going to be most attractive and appealing to a job screener. Okay. And so this is why this whole idea of becoming a virtual piece of paper is taking on new significance because more and more people no longer have access to an actual person. Twenty years ago, you could walk into an HR company or maybe the HR department of a company, and ask to speak with a person who makes the hiring decisions. In this day and age, in 2014, you'll get no further than the guard's desk. Yeah. And so how then do you facilitate a human connection? That's where the sponsor comes in. Right. Well, we're going to have, uh, over the course of uh, the next several months, we're going to have several uh, seminars uh, and teleconferences on job search in different industry sectors. So. Uh, hopefully you, uh, you'll be able to participate in a couple of those. And, and I know uh, you have some suggestions on job search, which we're uh, going to be listening to in just a moment. And, but before we do that, can you give us in you know, just a couple of minutes uh, kind of some two profiles of people who you thought were particularly noteworthy and the stories were particularly poignant that you could share with us? Yes, there, there. Well, there, there's so many, unfortunately. But uh, one of the people that really stuck out to me is a is a man by the name of Jason. And I should say that the names of the people used in the book have been changed to protect people's identities. But Jason is was in academia for quite a while. He has a PhD in psychology, and his his dream was to be a, a, a tenured professor at a, at a major university. But as he went to work to achieve tenure, and and tenure basically allows a person to have a a job for life, if you will, he was denied tenure. As a result of being denied tenure, eventually he lost his position, began to teach at a local high school. He lost that 
uh, position because of budget cutbacks. And so long story short, Jason was supported for a time by his family. Um, after a while, they were no longer able to support him financially. He moved in with a friend. The friend lost his job. Jason ended up moving into a shelter. And, oh, by the way, during this process, he also lost his home. As a matter of fact, he was served with uh, notice of intent to foreclose documents on Christmas Eve. And it actually happened to correspond on the same day that he got his first unemployment check after being laid off from his high school job. And so one of the things that he points out in the book is how could someone with this level of education not make it? And this, again, is one of the harsh truths that I talk about. There are so many people who are very well credentialed, as, as well as those who may, who may not have that level of education, who are being affected mildly by the economic stress. So Jason is certainly a person that, that stood out. And then there was, a, there was another family, um, a middle-class family, Tammy and Harrison, who have just been hardworking people. They have a couple of younger children. But because of some of the job disruption that Harrison has faced, they're now in a situation where they're living paycheck to paycheck. Harrison is a truck driver. Tammy is an executive assistant. They have two young children. Their lifestyle has been affected mightily because a few years ago, uh, Tammy uh, was facing some serious health challenges. And so what ended up happening was their savings got depleted, so they have no cushion. Unfortunately, they were facing a situation where they needed a new heater, a new furnace, which was going to cost them approximately $4,500. Didn't have the money. And so what ended up happening was Tammy and Harrison made the decision that Harrison should call his father to ask him for a loan. Harrison is, is a very proud man. He's always been a person who stood on his own two feet, but he's in a situation now where he can't manage the financial demands of his household, nor his wife. And so his story ends with him picking up the telephone call to make the phone call to his father. So it's those kinds of stories that really get to validating how economic stress can make you feel. And, and there are several other stories in the book that capture mm -hmm. that, that impact. And you interviewed, as you said much earlier, people of all, of all classes, of all races, of all educational levels. Is there a pattern that you observed among all these profiles and all these people about those who, you know, survivability factor, you know, what those who survive have to do or what they go through and adjust to versus those who don't? Well, I think one of the it, it, it's sort of akin to the old saying, you know what happens to trees that don't bend in storms. And, again, it's the willingness to be flexible. And a part of being flexible is you may have to recalibrate what success looks like. You may have to think differently about spending money. You may have to decide that, you know what, even though I can't save as much as I'd like to, I need to save something. And so the mindset or the willingness to change the mind about how you think about yourself and your ability to not just survive but more importantly endure and thrive is typically one of the ways that people who manage economic stress more effectively tend to go as opposed to those, you know what, I'm going to continue to do the same things I've always been doing because I deserve this. I've worked hard. I am not going to change how I live now. And so people who have the latter attitude tend not to fare as well as those who are saying, you know what, this is a setback. Yes, it is, but it could, in fact, be a setup for something great to happen. And so I'm hoping that more people will choose to look at it as not a failure, but maybe a time to sort of adjust things a little bit. 
And I, with this, we're going to close, uh, but I want to uh, kind of reiterate something you just said and that the ability to be flexible, to bend, to, to overcome your ego, your, your resistance, uh, as hard as it may appear and be at the moment often results in uh, building a stronger tree since you're using the metaphor of the tree. Uh, uh, it does when you're pruned a little bit, you do grow stronger. And I've seen a lot of people come back from, I knew one person in, in my field, human resources. <laughs> I bumped into, at a, he was, uh, worked for a grocery store and he was in the, you know, checking out <laughs> people. I said, I don't believe it's you. Uh, and you know, he did it. And then oh. I know a year later he you know, moved back into HR and moved up the corporate ladder and it was just fine. But, he had to, you know, he had to eat the dirt and uh, do the thing and had to adjust whatever other people were saying and uh, commenting about him. But it, but the point I think that I, I heard you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have to bend. And so the people that liked the story of the tenured, uh, the non-tenured professor, did he, this person not bend enough? Did this person not compromise enough to just get by no i don't i don't i don't think it was that for him I, I think that he was reeling so much from the shock of it all because this was a person who had earned the highest degree that you can earn a phd mm -hmm. and so in his mind having come from a family that stressed education and the importance of having education mm -hmm. he felt that the education was going to be the ticket and, and what i'm here to tell your listeners is that education is more important now than it ever has been but education is just one of the tools that people should have in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. It's not the right. tool anymore, but it's just one of the tools. And so I, I think that when he began to really see that clearly, because he had a lot of feelings around um, the impact it was having and, and certainly did experience episodic depression, he really, I think, began to look at himself and the world around him in a different way. Right. And it is that core sense of self-confidence and belief in yourself. And the degree, even though it's, it's, as you say, the terminal degree, can't give that person the ultimate self-confidence that, you know, that they need to have. Well, thank you, Dr. Brown. This has been fascinating. For people interested in hearing more about this book and having an opportunity to ask Dr. Brown questions, we have a webinar on Friday, March 14th at 1 p.m. It will be uh, listed in our next newsletter, the link to the webinar. It is free, and we hope you can join us. So thank you so much for uh, being with us today, and we hope you've benefited and learned and makes your life a little bit better. Thank you.